This is Design School as a podcast for the growing designer. Those interested in design, starting their career in design, or looking for a reminder of why they went into design. On this episode, we talk with Debbie Millman, a designer, author, illustrator, educator, and brand consultant who is currently the chair and co-founder of the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts, the editorial and creative director of Print Magazine, and the founder and host of the award-winning podcast, Design Matters. In our conversation, Debbie talks about her initial spark in design, working through and understanding cycles of fear and insecurity that led to life-changing decisions in her career, planning for the long tail, and persevering through trauma in hope for a better life. Debbie Millman, thank you so much for joining us on This Is Design School today. Um, It was a pleasure to uh, hear back from you and have you on the podcast with us today. Thank you, Chad. It's really nice to be here. We wanted to get the conversation started off by asking about your own journey in design. So maybe starting off with how you first found or were inspired by design and then kind of that initial spark? Well, it was quite an unexpected spark. I was working at the school newspaper at, mm-hmm. in, in the college that I went to. Um, at the end of my junior year, I was writing for the arts and features section for the Albany Student Press, mm-hmm. the acronym of which was the ASP. <laughs> <laughs> And at the end of my junior year, I was asked to take over as the editor of that section for my senior year. And I then was responsible not only for the assigning of the articles and the editing, but also the layout and pay stamp. And this was in 1982 and 1983. And so I learned very quickly on the job, so to speak, and started to learn how to typeset and make stats and put together uh, through sort of the old school drafting table, layout and paste up how to design. And at that point, I realized I was just as much interested in the putting together of the paper as the assigning articles and coming up with ideas for the section and editing, if not more so. Mm-hmm. But when I graduated college that May, May of 1983, I had the opportunity to really pursue both the editorial path as well as the design path mm-hmm. from the start. And, and that's really what became the foundation of my career, being able to do a little bit of both. Yeah, well, and that, I mean, that's still relevant even today, you know, yeah. many of the things you do, that, yes. that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, I mean, you you found design relatively late in your formal education, or at least in college. Right, I didn't take, um, I didn't take any formal, I took one design class in, in yeah. my entire college um, experience, although I did have nearly enough, if not enough credits in art history, mm. but that was art history and not design. So yeah. big difference. Mm-hmm. And so from there, um, you mentioned kind of the work you were able to do, you were able to kind of balance between both. And what was that kind of period of discovery like for you in terms of um, 
How did you kind of keep learning about design um, since you didn't kind of get as much of that in school? I mean, there was, you mentioned a lot of learning on the job, but then also balance that um, with the editorial aspect of it. Um, kind of what was that journey of kind of discovery and learning like? Well, it was learning on the job a lot, which yeah. resulted in some embarrassing experiences <laughs> when people would hire me to do certain things only to discover that I didn't really know what I was doing. I remember doing some layout for a catalog. Uh, a, a woman had hired me to help her do the layout of a open center catalog in yeah. New York City. There's um, a place called the Open Center, which is sort of alternative education. And she was the designer. She hired me to do the layout and then realized that I didn't really know what I was doing. Even though I'd had this experience in school, it's very different putting together a newspaper for students and putting together a catalog for consumers. <laughs> yeah. And so she, I think, was really puzzled by why I thought I was qualified to take that job, um, let alone actually be there doing the job, so to speak. So there were moments mm -hmm. like that where I just didn't know what I was doing and was learning on the spot. <laughs> Some really, really embarrassing times, I remember. <laughs> I feel like we all have a story like that, and there's yeah. there's that moment of it's either that that we can exit the door and say okay, I gave it a shot, and we move on, or we double yeah. down on it and say okay, I learned, now I need to, I know what I need to know now, and and move forward from there. Did you have that? Moment? Yeah, but there was sometimes you couldn't fake it. I mean, I oh, remember yeah, being, yeah. I remember going to one of those agencies that represented people for projects and freelance work but in I, and i didn't know this at the time in order to be put on their roster you actually had to take a test and pass the test so that they would represent you as a designer and this was again in the days of old school lay it on paste up so i got to the office unbeknownst to me would have to take that test on the spot and they handed me the test. A lot of it, the first part of it was a sort of how many pikas to an inch kind of thing. And because I didn't know so many of the answers, I pretended I had to go to the bathroom and I just like ran out. <laughs> like ran out completely? There were so many questions I didn't know and I knew I was going to fail. Oh. And I was so humiliated and ashamed. I just like ran out. <laughs> yeah. I remember having to do a, a similar one on on a uh, very old um, Apple Quattro. I think that was the, the name. It was like in between the Macintosh series. Uh, yeah, that, that was one of those like, oh, what what do I do with this? What what do you want me to do with this? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that sounds kind of like a traumatic experience. <laughs> um, it was at the time, but it was so long ago. I actually didn't really remember it until now. <laughs> Yeah. Thinking about those early experiences. And it's fun to remember them now. At the time, they were humiliating, demoralizing, mm -hmm. and, and I was really ashamed of myself. But I can laugh, you know, 40 years later. Yeah. But you, and you persisted. Oh, of course. I've always persisted. That's, that's just part of my nature. I'm not someone that likes to be 
held down for very long. Mm-hmm. What was it that, um, what was the kernel that, that made you move forward from that? That's a question I've gotten a lot and I've spent a lot of time thinking about the answer. And what I've come up with is that ultimately in the grand scheme of feeling hope and feeling shame, I've always had one notch more hope. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So that's what's propelled me forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the, the ambition, the uh, the persistence to, to to go further next time is is, uh, is is a huge driving force for, I think, a lot of people at that age, right? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it was more, I, I had this hope at the time of of wanting to have a, a really special life, but I had no idea how to make a special life. Mm-hmm. And, and in many ways, I've talked about the first decade of my career being experiments in rejection and failure just over and over and over again, whether it be job rejection or failure, um, being rejected from graduate programs, being rejected from art programs, being rejected from numerous opportunities that I really wanted. But again, I think what kept me persevering was this hope for for a better life somehow. And I still have that, I think. One of the components that that people often don't realize, especially when looking back or looking at a career like yours, Debbie, is that there are a lot of uh, bumps in the road that you need to take in order to get to there. It's not a graduation and then you're Debbie Melman, you know, the, the amazing and award-winning and, and so forth. But there is a lot of, of hurdles that kind of go through in, in Oh yeah. And still, still to this day, I, yeah. I experience them. And just yesterday I had a meeting with the editor of my book and ended up in tears. There were very few people I know, if anyone, that, has just had this smooth sailing, bumpless journey. And, and I would be suspect of anybody that, that said that they did or, or had one like that. Even people that have made it fairly early in their lives, you know, people like Jessica Walsh or Jessica Hish or Timothy Goodman. You know, I know them all well enough to know that they definitely had their crosses to bear. They just had them much earlier than most. And so while it might seem like they made it earlier, they also experienced great trauma rather early. So I think it all is relative to what you know and what you think you know. Yeah, I think that's been something I've been thinking a lot is I feel like as I've grown and learned, and especially when I went to grad school, what I really learned was how much I didn't know and what I didn't know more than anything. And I think that kind of perspective has changed a lot about the way I've progressed forward into things. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, because my, because I've been working now for so long, you know, graduating in 1983, we're talking 38 years. Yeah. The first 10 were dark (laughs) and gloomy (laughs) and then the second 10 i would say were laying a foundation for an interesting career Mm -hmm. and then it really wasn't until my 40s that i feel that i began to do things that were really interesting and 
that's when I started the podcast. And that's when I, I really started to, what I believe make a difference in the, in the field of, of branding. So, you know, the twenties were a, a decade of rejection and failure and the thirties were a, a laying a foundation and experiencing a lot of firsts. And then really my forties were beginning to excel. And, you know, Paula Scherer said the 50s are all are the power decade. And I'm at the very, very, very end of that, that decade. Um, and I think that's true. I, I really do. I think that for anybody that's in their 20s, really just at the beginning, I would say plan for the long tail. You know, you don't want to peak in your 20s. You don't want to think that your greatest work when you're in your forties happened 20 years earlier. So I've often said, I don't wanna, you know, I don't wanna peak until the day before I die. Hmm. I wanna still think that there's greatness that's possible to make. It was interesting that you talked about, I mean, kind of these decades of your career and what was, I mean, reflecting back, what was that pivot point between the second decade and the third decade, which would be, you know, the thirties and forties where you were kind of setting the foundation to where you actually felt like you were transitioning into uh, making a change and making an impact in the field? That's a great question. Um, I would say, it was a combination of corporate success mm -hmm. and finding my own individual voice. And so while I was working on big global branding projects mm -hmm. and those being very, very visible, I was also beginning to make a voice for myself personally as a writer and then in 2005 as a podcaster or as a you know a person that was interviewing people and then as as an author of books so i think i didn't i published my first book in 2007 so 2003 i started writing for speak up for armin vit 2005, I started the podcast. 2007, I wrote my first book, started writing for print magazine. So I think that the combination of doing highly visible corporate work with very personal self-generated work was really what, what did it. And I, I really encourage everybody to never abandon their own personal tips. I did abandon it for quite a long time. And it wasn't until I came back to it that I feel that the combination of both really helped me develop as a practitioner. That's really interesting. I mean, as I've been thinking about formulating my career in a more intentional way, I've been kind of building it upon these three pillars. One is practicing. So, you know, doing the work. The second is teaching or learning, right? And then the third is contributing. But 
what I'm hearing from you is there's actually this fourth pillar, which is generated work, the self-generated yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause I forgot to add in there. So 2005, I started speak up 2006. I started teaching 2007. I published my first book. So yeah, yeah. it was that, that whole expansion of, of my professional horizons mm-hmm. which was very intentional on one level in that I had always yearned for it, but it was also driven by some luck and opportunity sort of hitting at the same time. Well, and what's interesting for me, and, and now that I'm getting to this point, is I feel like I'm having to make decisions differently because suddenly um, the one thing I usually always had to give, which was time, I no longer have to give. So I'm having to make decisions in a different way. And I'm guessing for you, as you kind of picked up more of these pieces and pillars, you probably had to start making similar decisions around time Mm -hmm. um, and effort and where you placed that. Um, What what was that decision-making or prioritization process for you and deciding what opportunities you really wanted to go after versus not? Well, I think the biggest decision that I made that's impacted my life immediately before, during, and since was the decision to leave the corporate world. And that was a decision I made in 2016 when after 20 plus years at Sterling Brands, I decided that I was offered the opportunity to become the CEO. And and that was a really, really tough decision to make. Um, I was offered the opportunity and then then ultimately turned it down. And that was a huge decision. Um, I had been talking about leaving Sterling. I mean, I'd always intended to leave at a point where I could pursue more of my own personal work. Yeah. As the years went by, we, I started, as I said, you know, writing in 2003 for Speak Up, 2005, the podcast, 2006, teaching, 2007, published my first book. In 2008, I had two partners at Sterling and we sold our company to Omnicom. Mm -hmm. And when we sold the company, we had contracts that we had to fulfill And initially I thought it was going to be a three-year contract, which was going to dovetail perfectly with my starting the program at SVA, but ended up being a five-year contract. Hmm. And so I ended up having to create the program I did at at SVA simultaneously. So I had a full-time day job at Sterling and a full-time night job at SVA because it was an evening program. And then was also still writing and publishing books and doing the podcast and, and so forth. And... I knew I had a five-year contract and figured that I might leave, you know, after that. Mm-hmm. But after that, <laughs> we were doing really, really well. And I was also renovating a house and thought, you know, I could use the nice paycheck. And yeah. I said so long that like my really close friends and my family were like, you're never gonna leave. So just admit mm-hmm. it. Like, stop saying you're going to leave eventually because you're not. Yeah. And at that point, I I I was still pretty adamant that I was going to. I just didn't really have the the courage to do it. And I was scared about what it would mean to leave this security of that position. And then when I was offered the opportunity to be CEO, I knew that I had to make a decision at that point because if I was going to leave, then then that was the time to go. 
you know, if I, I was either going to have a new boss, which I didn't want, who was, but my current CEO was gonna become chairman and as president, then if I didn't become CEO, what did that mean? And I decided, you know what, I don't, I don't want this job. I don't wanna be CEO. I wanna be able to leave and, and finally do more of the things that I'd always dreamed of doing. And it was sort of like, if not now, then when? Mm-hmm. And I had to really confront my fear and, and ultimately did it. Um, and I think it was one of the most important decisions I've ever made in, in terms of this next stage of my life, which I'm now firmly in, but at the time was terrifying. Mm-hmm. What a decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But again, that was, in, that was, I left Sterling in 2016. Yeah. I made the decision in 2015 and, and then left, yeah. you know, it, it, I had to sort of ease myself out both for my own reasons and also for the companies and so it was at the end of 2016 that I I I mean I still love Sterling and I love um, that they're doing really well now and doing some great great work and it's so fulfilling to see that continue I was terrified that that might not happen and then what would that mean and was really sad at the idea that that might that could potentially happen but it didn't and and I'm really happy and, and very very grateful that they're doing really well and and the company has continued on mm-hmm. well i mean when you talk about it and maybe it's clear in hindsight but that seems i mean you you mentioned the the long tail right but you, you're starting like setting this up like 15 years in advance and like what was it 2003 i think was the first kind of point you mentioned yeah i mean i knew when i went to sterling that the end game for the founder was to sell to sell yeah. the that that's what his goal was mm-hmm. and then I I got there in 95 and 98 I was doing really well at the company and it was written into my contract that I would have the opportunity to become a partner mm-hmm. and because I knew the end game was for Simon to sell the company in 1998 I I, I sort of made it clear that if I didn't become a partner at that point that I would leave. And that was really hard also. That was a very difficult decision because I couldn't bluff that. You know, if I, if I didn't become a partner at that point, then I was going to have to leave because I said I was going to (laughs) leave. But I remember going home that night wondering where the hell that gumption came from and cried because I didn't want to (laughs) leave. So if they, if Simon didn't come back and say, okay, we're going to, make you a partner I was gonna have to leave this job that I loved so that was a tough that was a tough 24 hours and then and then he did say and I had to earn the the partnership I I got like one share in 1998 <laughs> or, or like one percentage of a share and then over the next 10 years um, earned based on my performance, what was the, uh, the second largest um, shareholder? I became the second largest shareholder after Simon. And then in 2008, we, we sold the company. So that was also a reason why I couldn't genuinely, honestly say 
that I needed to stay there for security. It's just that's what I felt. And there was a very, that was a very big understanding for me to understand well, what would it take to feel secure? What would it take to feel like I could rely on myself? And that was a whole separate conversation to have that was very much different from being able to or feeling like you're able to. Very different scenarios. And then had to process all of that because I had never felt secure in my life. And so I had to confront that and, and work through that. Do you think that that kind of that timing of period of kind of creating more security uh, enabled you to take the next step into doing some of that other self-driven work and work you really wanted to do? I'm not sure. I think that when you look for anything outside of yourself for mm -hmm. security, that that becomes a hedonistic treadmill, you know, because you never really have enough if you're looking outside yourself. Yeah. And not to say that you, you know, you, ha you obviously have to have your basic needs met, mm -hmm. but I wasn't feeling insecure because my basic needs weren't being met. I was feeling insecure because I felt like at any moment it could all disappear and that it wasn't, you know, imposter syndrome and, you know, a whole slew of things that didn't give me the sense that anything was, I don't want to say permanent, but certainly had a solid enough structure to rely on. Mm -hmm. And and then I had to sort of investigate why and if I wasn't able to understand that better, then I was never going to make a change because I was always going to live in that sort of cycle of fear and insecurity. Yeah, it's very insightful. Well, I have a good therapist. You know? Yeah, <laughs> Oof. yeah. <laughs> going to therapy was the best decision of my life. So <laughs> it always is. Yeah. Well, not always, but if well, you're lucky, it is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it can become very transitional or uh, transformative. And mm -hmm. uh, it's an opportunity to really explore inside. And I think thinking about this idea of security and, and finding that security inside of, uh, of ourselves, it's one of those things that allows us to, to accept that not every path is straight or not every path is, uh, is going to be shiny, that there is going to be work and movement that, that, drives us forward or that stops us, yeah. allows us to reflect and, and then move on from there. Uh, one thing I really wanted to talk about was your books. Cause I mean, I think in terms of your self-driven work, I'm guessing your books are this really interesting intersection between some of your professional life and uh, some of your personal work. And I'm guessing that because the way your books are structured and designed, it throws all norms out the window, right? And, and, and how beautiful they are and, and, you know, using a lot of just like handmade typography and all of this, yeah. Yeah. what, what was it like putting that together and taking that and subvert the norms of a medium to like share knowledge and insight? I mean, cause your books, like, um, it could have just been words on the page, but there's so much more than that. Right. Oh, I see what you're saying. And, and the way you're integrating design in a in a in a much different way than a book would normally be designed, you know, yeah. gives it yeah. this extra label of meaning and expression to them. And so I was kind of curious about like that as 
you know, the process and what that was like and what the decision was to kind of break the norm of what publishing a book looks like, you know, in the layout. Yeah. Well, I, I've, I've written books in what I would consider to be like three categories. Yeah. One category is anthologies of interviews that, that I've conducted. One category is more what I would consider to be like textbooks. So yeah. one is, you know, essential principles of graphic design. And then the other is brand viable, which I did with my graduate students at SBA. And then the other two, which I think uh, what you're talking yeah. about, are the two books of, of illustrated essays mm. and illustrated words, really. Mm -hmm. and, and that's something that I've been doing my whole life. Well, my, I guess my whole adult life. I've yeah. been drawing and, and making things pretty much my whole life, but the drawing of words I started to do in my twenties. And then after taking a class with Milton Glaser in 2005, really committed to trying to make some things happen for myself that I'd always dreamed about. And, and one was doing a book of, of illustrated essays and created a, a sort of sample and sent it off to an acquisitions editor at FNW Books, which was somebody, FNW at the time also owned How Magazine and Print Magazine. And mm -hmm. I had a really good relationship with a bunch of the folks at, at How and also at Print, but How also had the imprint of books. And so that's how that book came, came to be. I sent this sample, didn't hear back, wondered if maybe it just sort of got lost in the ether. Six weeks later, wrote Megan Patrick, the acquisitions editor at, at FNW at the time and said, by the way, did you ever get that email I sent you with that sample? And she said she didn't, I resent it. She ended up presenting that to the editorial board at FNW and that's how I got my first, my first illustrated book of essays. And looking back on it, you know, I, I appreciate you saying that it, it was, Nice. I mean, Rodrigo Corral designed it. So that's why the design is so beautiful. I do think that some of the illustrated essays are better than others, but because I started it, having given up any of that self-generated work for over a decade, starting it again, I was sort of rusty. And then by the mm -hmm. time I finished the book, which was a year later, I feel like I had developed more of my chops as, as an illustrator and so the, the later ones are better than the first. And I ended up going back and redoing a whole slew of them. But then F&W was like, okay, you have a deadline. So you on this date, you have to stop. <laughs> yeah. And so then I submitted the work and it was published. And because I didn't want to lose my chops at the time, I asked the publisher of print, who was also the publisher of How, mm -hmm. if I could um, publish one visual essay every month on the printmag.com site and he was like sure but we can't pay you and I was like well, just just to have a, a place where I could do this and then also have this a really sort of solid deadline for myself mm -hmm. and I did that for three years and every month I published this visual essay and then the publisher um, Gary Lynch came back after three years and he was like you know you might have enough work here for a second book and I was like okay <laughs> and pick the best and and that became self portrait as your trader which was actually a painting the name of a painting that i'd done years and years before um and that was very unexpected and i feel like that book is so much better than look both ways but 
based on sales, people like look both ways better, mm. <laughs> which is sad because I think self-portrait is much more sophisticated, much yeah. better of that work. And that one is it's out of print now, is am I correct? That's out of print, yeah. But F and W went bankrupt so oh. years later, so I don't even know where that whole publishing entity resides. The copyright's back with me. I probably could republish it, yeah. but I, if I did, if I if I if I was going to publish another book of illustrated anything, I'd want to take it to the next level. And 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 I know that I will actually. I have I have thoughts about what I want to do next in that realm. I'm just waiting to get this current book that I'm working on, which is a book of essays and interviews about design matters. And that'll be out in October. And that's the meeting that I cried over yesterday. <laughs> it's been a bit of a, a bit of a bear doing this book. It's 150,000 words. Oh my God. Yeah. It's really intense. It's, it's, it, it, yeah, I just hope I make it through. I'm sure you will. One of the most challenging experiences of my life. <laughs> I would imagine. I saw that you uh, created a, um, a challenge for yourself of sketching through a movie, Melancholia, and, um, yeah. and then showing that through a video. Um, has there been any interest in trying to expand on that experiment of visualizing the movie, you know, instantaneously, but maybe somehow through motion graphics or, or, or another medium of, of sorts? It, it feels like you're going from, That's a great from, from motion, motion picture to the printed word back into some sort of video. I, I love making those little graphic films. The first one was quite by accident. It was during, it was, I had started watching Mike Mills' great film, Beginners. And in that film, the main character is a graphic designer and an illustrator. And I saw all of these really charming and, and absolutely wonderful illustrations. And so within like the first five minutes of the movie, I started sketching and I had a moleskin that I opened and started sketching and literally finished the moleskin when the, book, when the movie was done. And so it became this, the arc of this movie. I drew words, I drew images and I loved doing it. And so then I put it to the soundtrack of the movie and just put it up on YouTube and people really seemed to like it. And so then I did a bunch more. I think the final one I did was Melancholia, which was much more difficult to do. It's not as light and whimsical a movie. Not that that movie is light, not that Beginners was light and whimsical, but it was just doing it was a much simpler process. Whereas Melancholia was, was much more challenging. The, the content was much more challenging. Oh, and I also did We Need to Talk About Kevin, which was really, really dark content. Um, and so I found that they became very, very labor intensive. And so in order for me to do another one, I think I'd have to commit to doing doing it in a, in a way that wasn't so immediate, you know, drawing it while the movie's happening. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I have yeah, to yeah. pause. And, you know, I went back after the movie was over and then did a lot of coloring and, and finishing. Um, but that sort of cheats the process. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me a bit of uh, another movie by Von Trier called The Five Obstructions. 
in which he uh, says that this movie uh, called The Perfect Human was the reason why he became a filmmaker and the person who created the movie just had like this complete writer's block or creative block for the rest of his life and moved to Cuba and never made another movie and he hunted him down and said you are my inspiration and how can I get you out of this creative rut and they created this documentary about him having to redo the perfect human with all of these different obstructions in place that Von Trier would give to him. And each time it was one of these things that uh, the director, the original creator of the movie was like, oh, this is crazy, I can never do this. And he would go and try it and it would open up a whole new meaning for the movie. And like one of them was uh, he had to cut the movie every uh, half second. So you couldn't have a cut more than than 30, or. 12 frames and he's like that's that's impossible no one can do a movie like that and sure enough you could and it is beautiful the way that he, the movements and the action what is the name of the documentary it's called uh the five obstructions okay thank you i'm yeah. gonna go watch it yeah it is it is very inspiring i used to show it sometimes to my students uh as this uh opportunity to say that you think you can only do it this way but in reality, you know, there, there is all these things. You need the the opportunity to say, uh, I will try it. I know it's not going to work, but I will try it and then see what happens. Yeah. Now that would be a movie to do a graphic film about. Oh, yeah. You might have taken me my next project. <laughs> yes, by all means. It's, it is uh, an amazing movie that I often will recommend, as well as Melancholia. So when I Sully, you did yeah. that one. I was like, oh, yes, someone else who, uh, you know, is, is interested in that movie. Yes, yes. He's he's a very polarizing, complicated person, but he does make good films. Yeah, yeah. The, the visuals for that movie were stunning. Incredible. Yeah. Absolutely and incredible. I noticed that you use the, the, uh, the opening uh, score to that movie for your moving to the pages and there were moments where there was this crescendo of, of how you were turning the pages and and then the typography to it I was like that is amazing well thank you for noticing that yeah. I really really appreciate it the last thing I wanted to ask you about Debbie in was in regards to teaching and founding a new program that's a massive undertaking. What was your inspiration to move forward in that and how to actually do it? And then to figure out what the curriculum should be. Steve Heller, my fairy godfather, mm -hmm. who helped me get my first book deal, mm -hmm. wrote me in 2007 and asked me to have lunch. And in our subsequent meeting, he wanted to know if I would be interested in working with him to develop a graduate program in branding. And I had never heard of any other graduate program that had existed in branding. Thought this would be a wonderful way to start thinking about my future and immediately said yes. And then spent the next two years working with Steve to develop the framework. I had to come up with the entire curriculum and essentially built the curriculum around a group of, of faculty members that I wanted to do this with me and essentially created classes that I felt 
would be necessary for anybody that was pursuing a graduate degree in branding, what they should need to learn. And, and it was basically what I wished that I could have learned mm-hmm. as I was growing and developing as, as a brand consultant. And mm-hmm. so that's what I did and started the program. Our, we graduated our first class in 2011. We are now graduating our 10th class mm-hmm. and, and we just keep growing it and evolving it based on what's happening in the marketplace. So it's very real time. All of the faculty are working professionals. So they're really at the top of their fields. And um, it's something that is a true gift to be able to be doing. Mm-hmm. It's been challenging over the last year with COVID, but that's also given us an opportunity to move the program online, which initially I thought would be a complete and utter disaster, yeah. mostly because I'm a technophobe. Um, but it's been really surprising and has opened up new opportunities for the way that we teach and the students that we teach in, in a way that I think is really exciting and, and offers a lot of different channels to grow. So Mm -hmm. it's been, it's been a really unique experience and one that I definitely didn't anticipate. Yeah. I mean, I remember when my class went online and I had this first initial slide that was a map and I said, I am here, where are you? (laughs) And had, and had them kind of document because it was this first time being in a classroom together uh, where we weren't in a classroom together. We had students that weren't able to get to the US at the time and and Mm -hmm. things like that. And so it was just, it not only gave me an information, but also, you know, let everybody know or you know kind of experience each other in that way yeah i mean it's been so successful for us that mm-hmm. we're now about to announce having an online cohort in addition mm-hmm. to an on-site cohort for the future so for the people that do want to take the program but either can't get to the united states or don't want to move or can't afford it it gives people an opportunity to actually have the same classes. We're doing it all synchronous, so everybody has to be online at the same time people are in the classroom. But I think that it's a real opportunity to change the dynamic of the program. And because I felt that online, or I feel like online teaching has democratized the classroom in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to seeing how that potentially evolves the, the student body and the way that we teach. So as we come to the end of our time together, we always end our episodes by doing what JP likes to call the recommendation list. Okay. Um, so I wanted to ask you, is there anything you've been listening to or reading lately that has made a big impact on you that you feel like hasn't gotten enough play or read yet that you think would be worth consuming? Well, I don't know that I would say it hasn't gotten enough play because it's just been released and I imagine that it will continue to grow and and develop and and gather a really big audience based on his 
past work, but Adam Grant's new book, Think Again, mm. is, is really remarkable. Mm. Um, and I've learned a lot about how we develop our, what we think is our knowledge and, mm -hmm. and what we think of as right. And in a time where we've been, I think, bombarded by all sorts of news, both real and fake, that being able to trust your own assessment of things is more important than ever. So that's a great book. Seth Godin just wrote a great book called The Practice, which I'm having all my students read, which I think is remarkable. Um, I've discovered the work of Bisa Butler. She's a textile artist um, and she's very easy to find on Instagram, Bisa Butler, B-I-S-A-B-U-T-L-E-R. And, and her work is extraordinary. And I, I highly recommend that. There's a book that, that'll be out in the fall by Ashley Ford that I haven't read yet because it's not out, but I know a lot about. And so I anticipate that greatly. Ashley C. Ford, highly, highly recommend. Um, the TV show, I May Destroy You, which I think is the one of the best. Michaela Coles, she, she wrote it, she directed it, she stars in it. She got snubbed at the mm -hmm. Emmys, which I'm mm -hmm. very angry about. Mm -hmm. um, but it's one of the most remarkable shows I've ever watched and think it's extraordinary. Those are just a few of the things that I've been reading or listening to or watching. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I usually like to ask the uh, question about COVID. Um, of course, how are you doing? Hope you're okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I have been healthy and thank, thank goodness for that, knock wood. Yeah. Um, yeah. And my wife is healthy, thank goodness, not good. Nice. Um, you know, it's been sort of the best of times, the worst of times, you know, the worst of times in going through this tragedy of, of handling this, this pandemic, which I think could have been managed a lot better. Um, the loss of life is tragic. Yes. Um, Roxanne and I were planning on getting married in October of 2020. We were planning on having a really big wedding and Obviously that was canceled. We ended up going to a little joint in Encino, California called Instant Wedding. And <laughs> I've been out there with my cousin and her partner and my best friend and her husband um, with our family on uh, FaceTime. Nice. <laughs> so, but it's, you know, we're healthy, so there's no complaints. There's zero complaints. And what have you done anything uh, new creatively during this time? Have you have you explored the uh, the art of bread making like everyone seems to? Uh, well, she's, she's an avid <laughs> cook. So she's been cooking all the time. I do not cook and you don't want me to cook. Um, she cooks, I eat. And what have I been doing creatively? Well, I've still been doing the podcast, which I didn't do for a few months. Um, but I started again in April of 2020 and then kept podcasting all the way through and that's been challenging but still manageable and I've been working on my book and I started working with NYC by design and I'm hosting a podcast that they make called The Mic which is about design and that's been absolutely wonderful and also was part of and I'm still part of a, a TV launch first New York by design and now America by design that Mike Chapman is producing and, and that has been really exciting and totally different for me. So I've been doing that too. I've been very lucky to stay healthy and also to be involved in some really remarkable creative endeavors. And 
I'm still teaching, so I don't go anywhere. I don't travel at all, really. I've gone back and forth to LA once with Roxanne because we live in two places and that's the only trip that I've made. Um, other than that, I mostly stay in the house and oh, we got a dog. Oh. <laughs> got a dog in October, so he's now, um, you know, a big, big focus of our love. Nice. I've heard that your wife is not much of a, was not much of a pet person to begin with. No. And, and you are a very big pet person. Yes. So <laughs> she's, she's grown over the years. Yeah. And she even mentioned yesterday or the day before, like, maybe we should get another dog. So I, <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is a sign of true love right there. That is indeed. <laughs> Both for me and the dog. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Well, Debbie Millman, thank you so much. It has been an honor and a pleasure to uh, to have you on, on our podcast. Oh, thank you both. This was an absolutely wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for doing so much research and, and making this such a joy. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. This is Design School is recorded in the field where design happens. The music for This is Design School is composed and recorded by Michael R. Clark. You can find Michael online at musiclabtacoma.com. For additional information about each episode, visit thisisdesign.school. We'd love to hear what you like, what you don't like, and what you'd want to hear in the future. Follow the podcast on Twitter at T-I-D-S Podcast. Also, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. And share us with your designer friends. Bye for now. <laughs>